Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. For this 75th episode we head back to flyover country and discuss a case out of South Dakota from 1995. We have just 25 episodes left until we hit the 100 episode goal before CrimeCon and we should break both the 4,000 download mark and 8,000 Facebook likes mark this week. So big thanks to all of you for listening to the podcast and telling your true crime podcast loving friends to check it out. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. After CrimeCon, I'll be sending out True Blue Crime merch to anyone who has ever donated via Patreon and or PayPal, so feel free to donate now for your on-air mention and some future merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. In 1908, a 19-year-old man in Sioux Falls, South Dakota named Thomas Fawick built the world's first sedan in his auto shop. The first of its kind automobile with four doors, it was made from aluminum instead of steel, and its 40-horsepower engine combined with its lightweight body helped propel the car to speeds of close to 70 miles per hour. This was blisteringly fast in a time when the speed limit in Sioux Falls was 7 miles per hour on straightaways and 4 miles per hour while turning. Two years later, President Theodore Roosevelt visited South Dakota to partake in a bison hunt and insisted on riding an Afawak flyer during a parade the town threw in his honor. The flyers were hand-built and featured a right-hand drive because at the time, the wheel could be put wherever the designer wanted it. It wouldn't be until the mass-produced cars from Henry Ford that the decision to make all American vehicles left-hand drive was put into law. Only 11 Fawick flyers were made before Thomas got bored with his automobile manufacturing and moved to Iowa and began designing tractors. 900 of his tractors helped English farmers make enough food for the war effort in World War I. In 1928, Thomas moved to Cleveland, Ohio, where he lived out the remainder of his life. He continued to invent machines and machine parts, including heavy-duty clutches that were used on landing crafts in Normandy during World War II. He compiled 300 patents during his life and self-taught himself how to play violin at age 11. He composed thousands of pages of music and loved art, especially the works of Michelangelo. In the early 1970s, he used some of his immense fortune to commission a bronze replica of Michelangelo's Statue of David that was placed in downtown Sioux Falls as a thank you for the city's love and support of him during his years of invention. The city experienced massive growth during the 1980s and 90s, mainly due to economic investment by large companies that took advantage of the state's low tax burden. But with the influx of people, came an influx of crime, and in 1995, a murder for hire would take the life of a young mother and shock those who would call the city home. The crime begins not with our victim, but a woman named Amy Power. Amy was a young mother who had found herself in an abusive relationship with her husband, Robert Power. 
As a young mother in an abusive relationship, she wanted out of her situation, but lacked the financial capabilities to move out and get her own place. When Mary Kay Ross, a friend of Amy's, heard of her situation, she welcomed Amy and her child to come live with her and her child as a temporary safety measure. And this is something, you know, this is 10 years before I became a police officer. I don't know how available things like domestic abuse shelters were back in the 1990s. Uh, They're an immensely important part of our society because there are people out there, especially women, that find themselves in an abusive relationship. And it's usually not the case where the guy is abusive in the beginning. It's usually these guys are charming and nice and then the couple moves in together and the guy's true color shows he becomes extremely abusive and again it's usually the guy i do know that there are abusive women out there but uh, when we're speaking generalities it's, it's typically the male who becomes physically emotionally psychologically abusive towards the woman and it's all about control and power for this for the male he wants to control the relationship every aspect of it and when he doesn't get his way he often resorts to abuse like i said either either physical abuse or some other form of abuse and as i said this is after the couple moves in together and oftentimes after children have been introduced to the relationship and that's actually one of the huge stressors in relationships is kids especially young kids and oftentimes it's the female that will stay home to raise the children it just that's just how you know society has done it forever and although there are again exceptions to this there are the stay-at-home dads out there but for the most part it's stay-at-home moms they're raising the children and they forego their career as a result of it so they're not making any money so they don't have access to the same financial capabilities that a lot of the times the males in the relationship have so when they get into the situation they literally feel trapped because they don't have anywhere to go and they don't have the financial means to go get a hotel for the evening even to get away for just that evening that they need and even though they need more than that they definitely don't have money to go rent a second apartment and put a security deposit down on it so they as i said they literally feel trapped in these situations and that's where these domestic abuse shelters that where these women can go find a safe place to stay we we had one in the city that i worked in that was a secure facility meaning it had locked doors that were only accessible via like a, a keypad system and had a even a, a sally port system at the front door where if somebody even got in through the front door there was a secondary lock inside so it's not like somebody could just follow somebody in real quickly and get right into the place uh, it, it wasn't a complete and utter safe situation because people knew this place existed so if your significant other left you and you knew they didn't have the financial capabilities to get their own place or stay in a hotel there's a good chance they were likely going to be going to the shelter but again it does provide a little peace of mind it provides a great opportunity for this person to get out of this relationship and then they had advocates there that would work with these abused women in order to get things like orders for protection uh, so that 
eventually they could maybe return to their apartment or to their house and be able to live there and and the guy wasn't allowed to be there because of this court order that prevented him from being there so again i don't know if these places existed at least existed in the sioux falls area back in 1995 that she could have taken advantage of of something like that but in the absence of something like that oftentimes you have these people that will step up like mary Kay ross recognize that you know she's able to provide some measure of safety some measure of of freedom for her friend amy and so she's going to open up her apartment tell her to come live there get away from this situation and and try to better her life and when amy moved out and it was said early 1995, I don't have an exact date, Robert became extremely upset. As is often the case, his abuse was a form of keeping control over Amy, and when she moved out, he lost his ability to abuse and control his wife. Furthermore, he knew that Amy had moved in with Mary, and according to him, he had heard a rumor that Mary had smoked marijuana in front of his child. And I always take these types of claims with with a grain of salt because these guys that are abusive controlling they'll say just about anything to try to justify their actions and this could be a a simple thing of a telephone game now it could be true but it could also be a situation where he's either completely fabricating the situation or it's a rumor that's gone through the telephone game and what had happened was nothing close to what what was really the case but basically this went on for a couple months at least where amy was living with mary and robert felt that mary was purposely causing issues in the marriage which again is another a key sign of a guy that is abusive and controlling that he's going to not understand that it's his own actions that are that caused Amy to move out he's going to think that it was Mary that somehow convinced Amy to move out and has convinced her to move away from this marriage nonetheless Robert is infuriated and he hatches a plan to get revenge on Mary Sometime in early July 1995, Amy lost a key ring that contained a key to Mary's apartment. Mary, fearing that Robert had stolen the key ring and would have ability to access the apartment at any time he wanted, requested via her landlord to have the locks changed. And there's going to be a lot of controversy about both of these things. For one, there was source material out there that said that Mary actually gave Robert a copy of the key back in like February of 95 because the babysitter that Robert and Amy used was going to need to come watch their child at some point and so they wanted the babysitter to have a key so they gave Robert a key to make a copy to give to the babysitter so some believe it's possible way back then Robert made a copy of the key or it's also possible again that when Amy lost her key ring with her keys on it a few days before this crime is going to occur that that somehow had something to do with Robert taking the key. Now South Dakota law at the time forbid tenants from paying to have locks changed in the property they were renting and this does make some semblance of sense because 
landlord and tenant relationships don't always go well. And technically, yes, that renter is renting the property from the landlord, but the property still belongs, at least the you know exterior of the home, all that kind of stuff belongs to the landlord. And then there's situations where a landlord may need to make emergency entrance into the property that they own, uh, such as some type of a water main break or some type of damage or you know some maintenance issue that needs to be fixed or looked at. And so if the tenant changes the lock, the landlord can't access their property even though it's rented. And, and I know it enters into a lot of what the renter's paying for privacy, but most leases allow landlords to enter property under emergency situations. And so changing the locks basically violates the lease at that point. So it was actually South Dakota law saying you can't change it's against the law for you to change locks on a property you don't own that you're that you're renting and so now again more controversy uh, mary's family it's her mother um, sherry smith is going to say that mary put in a request to have her locks changed with the landlord however it's going to be the landlord that's going to state that that no request was actually ever made and state law also required tenants to pay a fee to have the new keys or locks changed. And again, this also makes sense because if it is on the burden of the landlords to change keys or to make more keys or whatever it might be, it makes sense that they're allowed to charge their tenant in order to recoup any you know, losses they incur as a result of having to make these keys or having to pay somebody to change the locks or whatever it might be. And under a lawsuit that would arise from this crime, Mary's mother, Sherry Smith, claimed that Mary told the on-site maintenance workers at the apartment that she had lost a key. The apartment managers and the maintenance workers claimed that Mary simply told them she lost the key, and when asked if she wanted any action taken, she declined, saying the key will probably show up. And this is likely going to become more of an issue because Mary doesn't have the money to pay the fee to have the the locks change she's actually going to talk to her mom sherry about this at some point and so she knows if she puts in the formal request at least at the point in which she first told them about it she's going to get charged this 45 dollars to have the locks changed or whatever it might be and she doesn't have that money so i think she was stalling a little bit at least originally when she told them uh, that she wanted to or, or that the key was missing uh, but like I said it's we'll talk about it more as we go on here this this lawsuit becomes part of this case that we'll talk about especially at the end now Sherry wrote a sworn affidavit that stated while talking to Mary on the phone around July 6th 1995 Mary had requested money from her mother to pay the fee to have the locks change because she was scared of Amy's estranged husband Robert Sherry stated Mary had fear in her voice when she told her mother about the missing key and said that Robert was a quote-unquote psycho. And in the early morning hours of July 9th, 1995, around 4 a.m., two men entered Mary's locked apartment. Amy and her child had left for a planned trip, something that Robert was aware of, so it was only Mary and her infant child inside the apartment. The two men used the missing key that had been taken by Robert to make the entry quietly. 
They found Mary sleeping in her bed and attacked her as she slept. Each suspect had a knife and stabbed Mary multiple times. Mary was able to get her to her phone and call 911 and was and told the dispatcher that she had been stabbed several times all over her body and she was dying. Mary told the dispatcher her one-year-old daughter was in a nearby room and she needed help. The dispatcher was able to get her name and address from the 911 call and dispatched officers to the scene. What the dispatcher didn't know is that the attackers were still on scene as Mary had actually escaped the initial attack by the two men and made it to the kitchen where the phone was located. The suspect's knives had broken during the initial assault, and after finding Mary in the kitchen, they grabbed more knives to finish the attack. They left Mary on the living room couch, having slit her throat to ensure she would not survive, and then knowing that the police were on their way, they fled the scene. They were able to make it out of the area before the first officers arrived. Thankfully, Mary's 14-month-old child, Christian, was unharmed during the attack. Investigators arrived within an hour and began going through Mary's address book to locate associates that might know who would have wanted her dead. It didn't take long for many fingers to be pointed at Robert Power, and the investigation quickly focused on the abusive and controlling husband of Mary's temporary roommate. Through the use of informants, investigators were able to piece together that the murder had not been carried out by Robert Power, but he was the mastermind and three other men were involved. Robert Power's good friend, Michael Lee Smith, had located two individuals willing to commit the murder for either $10,000 or two pounds of meth. These men were identified as Eric Kuhn and Robert Poppin. And this, again, it, it honestly feels like whenever I cover a case from this, this area, the South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, anything like that in the the mid to late 90s meth is going to be involved and I've mentioned it every time I cover this that this this drug seems to just be part of of every major murder or homicide that's occurring in or around this this area at this time uh, and again it's it's just something that as I do more and more of these cases I'm seeing these patterns emerge and it was during a time period in which I was a teenager but not involved in any, any of that kind of stuff and so for me, it's, it's almost like learning a, a part of history that I really didn't understand at the time because I just, again, it wasn't on my radar. I wasn't uh, involved in law enforcement. I wasn't involved in the drug scene. I wasn't really paying attention to you know, major homicides or anything like that around the area. I was more focused on, on baseball and, and dating and all that kind of stuff that that you focus on when you're in high school so just just again another interesting thing it'll be interesting if i work, find one of these cases from that time period in this area and meth isn't involved i think at this point i'll, I'll be more shocked now in addition to the promised payment coon and poppin requested a key for the apartment a map of the apartment in the area around it a vehicle to use and money for supplies to carry out the murder Shortly before the murder, Robert Power provided the two men with either the missing key or a copy of the missing key, his car, a map, and $50 in cash to purchase what they needed. The two men drove to a Hy-Vee store and purchased gloves, two knives, which are actually steak knives, cigarettes, soda, and a frying pan. The frying pan was actually purchased for Poppin's girlfriend because they figured a purchase of gloves and knives alone would be suspicious 
And we actually had a case, a homicide in the city that I worked in, where the guy, had, he had gotten a, a woman pregnant and he did not want her to have the child. He didn't want the responsibility of paying for the child. He waited until she was later in her pregnancy, very late in her pregnancy, and he drove to a Walmart, purchased, it was kind of a similar purchase, was gloves and, and like a survival knife type knife. And that's gonna be one of the differences here. People don't understand, yes, you can kill somebody with, with a steak knife or a kitchen knife, but they're not designed for stabbing, for, for cut, you know, for, putting that much force and impact onto bone and that kind of stuff. So that's why we hear a lot of the times these knives break during these assaults. Uh, this is at least the third or fourth stabbing that we've talked about where the knife knives have broken because unless you get some type of a knife designed for combat, uh, like a K-bar knife or something along those lines, the spine of these knives, it's, it's made to be somewhat flexible and not and it's made to cut meat like in in a kitchen environment it's not made as an, an attacking weapon so the, these knives often do break but anyway so this this guy uh, in the city that i worked in he goes to the local walmart and buys again it was something like gloves and a knife and the investigators would later interview the clerk that sold him the stuff and she must have raised an eyebrow at him or just kind of gave him one of those looks like you're buying a murder kit here. And his reply to her was, well, don't worry, it's not for you. And just one of those things where this is where the mindset of some of these just monsters are is that they, they don't understand, I mean, they do, but they just don't care how sinister they really are. Uh, but at I guess at least in this case, these guys are intelligent enough to realize that purchasing just gloves and knives and, and soda and cigarettes would be a little weird. So they threw in this frying pan and, and maybe the person thought that they were, who knows, going to butcher something and fry it up. But it didn't look as much like a murder kit as just the gloves and knives alone. And less than a month later, on August 1st, investigators made plans to round the four suspects up one at a time to interview them. However, locating the individuals was easier than investigators thought, so they all ended up at the police station at the same time. I don't know exactly how this plan went down. I don't know if it was something where they wanted to get all those guys there that day and thought it would take a few hours between each suspect to find them. From what I can recall, I think Poppin and Kuhn, I thought they were roommates with Smith. So it's very possible that the three of them were maybe even picked up together type of a thing. So instead of getting one at a time, they end up with all four of them there at once, which is going to be an issue because they all needed to be in separate rooms. And at that time, the police station did not have recording equipment in all of the interview rooms just a couple of them. And so while some of the interviews were recorded, some were not due to lack of equipment. But after the suspects waived their Miranda rights, investigators interviewed all of the suspects, going between rooms to speak to each man and turn them against each other in order to elicit a confession. It was that same day that Kuhn and Poppin confessed 
to going into Mary's apartment and killing her, and doing so as a part of a murder-for-hire plot that involved Robert Power and Michael Lee Smith. That evening, Smith confessed to his role in facilitating the meeting between Robert Power and Coon and Poppin, and that he knew it was part of a murder-for-hire plot. And this is what we often see when you have multiple suspects. It's usually not four. It's usually two or at the most three suspects, but... Investigators will go from room to room interviewing these guys, and since investigators are allowed to lie, sometimes they'll stretch the truth and say that, hey, your buddy so-and-so, he just confessed to everything, but he's pointing the finger at you, as, especially when a case involves a single gun and, and one shooter but two or three people. And so they'll say, well, your buddy confessed, but he said you're the one that, that pulled the trigger. And the hope is that the the guy feels the pressure and he'll confess to his involvement but he'll point the finger at either the guy that pointed the finger at him and ultimately investigators yes they want to get a true confession but they're probably not going to get it in most cases but if they can get the the guys to admit that they were there and were part of this plan to kill someone it doesn't necessarily matter as much in the end who actually pulled the trigger you can still charge everybody uh but instead of everybody staying quiet and saying you know if they don't talk i won't talk all usually investigators have to do is say hey this other guy's talking he's talking a lot it'd be in your best interest to do the same that guys quickly start trying to save their own skin by confessing enough to try to get the blame off of them but in, in turn they'll actually again confess to being there confess to being involved in the plot which is what the investigators are looking for and and i don't know exactly if if coon and poppin confessed to every single detail of what they did that day and the planning that went into it and all that kind of stuff or if investigators only got just enough in order to feel comfortable charging them but Ultimately, the case seemed pretty open and shut. And now, this case did not have a lot of information out there about it. This is not one that was covered wild, widely. Um, and being that it's almost 30 years old at this point, uh, there's, again, just not a lot of attention was brought to the case. There's very few websites or news articles associated to this case, but what little i got it definitely seemed like they had the confessions i'm guessing they had some pretty good evidence from the crime scene because later on one of the prosecutors would actually say even if the confessions got tossed out we had plenty plenty of evidence against these guys so again in stabbing style attacks especially ones where blades break and there's a lot of blood involved it's often cases where the suspects will injure themselves uh, they'll leave their own dna behind it a scene they'll leave fingerprints behind a scene uh, in, in the case i talked about earlier where the guy bought the knife from the lady at walmart and said it wasn't for her he was actually ultimately convicted because we found his fingerprint in the victim's blood at the scene it was in the next room but it was at the scene of the murder so when you've got your suspect's fingerprint in the victim's blood i mean that's pretty much a slam dunk at that point nobody else can leave that print and that can't print can't exist without the victim's blood being present so oftentimes in these types of scenes 
even when the, the suspects begin wearing gloves, sometimes they take them off because it's difficult to hold on to a knife or if they're the thin like latex gloves that get ripped during the assault. Uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of things that can go wrong in terms of evidence if you're looking at it from the criminal standpoint uh, that likely existed here. But again, there wasn't a lot of information about that stuff. But with the confessions, with what sounds like good physical evidence, it was a pretty open and shut case. So Kuhn and Poppin entered guilty pleas in December of 1995 at the suggestion of their lawyers. And the, pros the prosecutors agreed as part of the plea to drop the death penalty punishment. And this was an appropriate punishment due to the murder being part of a contract. And if you remember, we talked about the, the last South Dakota case that we had uh, where the kid was taken out by the river and killed. Uh, there's, there's stipulations that need to be met before it becomes a death penalty case. And I think in that case, it was something about torture was involved and money was a motive or something along those lines. There's a couple different reasons why that was a death penalty case. As soon as you enter any type of contract for hire or murder for hire type of a deal, that makes it a death penalty case in South Dakota. So death penalty was on the table, but as a part of this plea agreement, Kuhn and Poppin agree to plead guilty to avoid the death penalty uh, and they're sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now they would both file several appeals in the aftermath of the case. They claimed they were under the influence of drugs at the time of the interrogation and therefore could have not waived their rights. And this was actually really looked at during the, the appeals process because one of the problems is you can't take a statement from somebody when they're intoxicated with alcohol. Uh, you, you just can't interrogate them, can't interview them. That, that statement won't stand in court. But when you have something like meth or another drug involved, somebody can be going through withdrawals from it and you're not gonna necessarily see the symptoms like you are with alcohol. Um, they're not gonna have the slurred speech more than likely. They're not gonna have difficulty concentrating. Now, some, depending on how serious the withdrawal is or how serious what the proximity was to the time they last smoked meth and how much they smoked, there could be signs of them being under the influence of meth at the time but the courts basically found that these guys were lucid and able to recall specific details during their tape confessions and they didn't appear to be having issues with concentration or answering questions and so ultimately the, the courts ruled that police officers don't need to ascertain a level of of drug intoxication with withdrawal uh, during this interrogation process, so their appeal was denied. They also appealed under the grounds that their lawyers advised them to plead guilty and they felt that they should have taken it to trial. And again, the courts found that the lawyers presented them with all the evidence against them and their guilty plea was favorable to both sides, with the state avoiding a trial and the two defendants avoiding the death penalty. Uh, so when they do this inadequate counsel appeal, what the courts look at is they actually look at everything they look at if the crime had something where the worst the person could get was life in prison without parole and the lawyers enter into some type of a plea agreement and that doesn't really favor the clients at all they still get life without parole and the lawyers had never 
worked a homicide, defended a homicide case before, whatever it might be, there, there could eventually be some grounds that these lawyers were just in over their head and basically did nothing for their clients. But in this case, the lawyers that they had had experience in homicide trials, including death penalty cases. They had, again, they offered a plea agreement or were able to work out a plea agreement that was favorable to the clients. So again, they're going to lose uh, these appeals. And both of the killers still reside in the South Dakota prison system where they will remain until the day they die. Robert Power also took a plea deal to avoid the death penalty. Uh, even though he was not a killer legally, he was just as responsible for the murder since he was the person offering the payment for the murder and he was sentenced to life in prison without a parole. So basically he got the same deal and I believe he did appeal as well and, and lost on, on his appeals. And Michael Lee Smith was the only one, as far as I could tell, that was not eligible for the death penalty because he did not commit the murder and he was not offering payment for the murder. So just because he was the middleman, I don't know that the state would have gone after him for the death penalty. I don't know if he was offered anything a quote-unquote finder's fee or something along those lines for helping Robert find these guys or if it was just literally the Smith knew that Robert needed needed some guys that might be willing to kill Mary and he just commented to Robert saying hey I, I know a couple guys that might be willing to help you out and that's as far as his involvement went he's still guilty of a crime for it but I don't know that it arose to the level his involvement got to the level where he would be eligible for the death penalty. So since I don't believe the death penalty was on the table for him, he rolled the dice and took it to trial, realizing you know the worst he could get is what, he prob what the other guys got out of a plea deal, which was life without parole. Maybe he was offered a deal that had parole eligible, but he decided to just roll the dice and try to beat the whole thing all together but eventually he ends up being convicted by the jury judge sentences him to life without parole and his lawyers fought to keep his tape confession out of the trial but lost because i don't know how much direct evidence they likely had against michael lee smith again he wasn't involved in the payment side of things and he wasn't one of the ones who actually committed the crime so it's something where it was probably his could have been his word against the other guys if it came to it but there was this tape confession of him telling the police how he introduced the guys to smith and knew it was part of a murder for hire plot and once that tape confession went in he was pretty much dead to rights and in, in, in terms of being convicted and as i said he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole now, what's interesting with this case is, again, there's not a lot of information about the crime itself other than kind of a summary of what happened and a summary of what happened to the suspects afterwards. But I was able to find where this case went to the lawsuit. And this, this became kind of interesting just reading the stuff about the lawsuit. So uh, as for the lawsuit against the landlords filed by Sherry Smith, uh, who was Mary Ross's mother, the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And this is because the lower courts had granted summary judgment in favor of the landlords, which denied Sherry a trial because they, the lower courts claimed there was no expectation of a third party to know a crime is going to occur 
and therefore cannot be held legally responsible for it. And they based this on the testimony of the landlord stating that Mary had not requested her locks to be changed. So basically summary judgment is when a judge decides without a trial that they're going to rule in favor of, and it's usually in the case of a lawsuit, the defendant basically stating they don't believe there's evidence to bring this forward to a trial. And as is most things in the legal world, this is a can be open to appeal. So Sherry's lawyers appealed this. It went to the Court of Appeals, who also decided in summary judgment in order in favor of the landlords. And they were basically basing it again on the idea that there wasn't a request for the change of locks and even if there was they didn't think that the landlords could be held responsible for what happened this this day that they're not responsible for the actions of a third party it wasn't them that directly caused the murder so they felt it wasn't something that should be should be in a court of law However, the Supreme Court in South Dakota decided two to one that this was not the case and that Sherry had the right to take the evidence to trial and let a jury decide if her daughter requested a lock change or not. And I think the Supreme Court got this right here that it's the court's role is to allow arguments and evidence to be presented to a jury when evidence is in question. And it's not the job of the judge to decide an entire case on his or her own when liability like this is under suspicion. And we see this a lot. I mean, I think some judges, there's what are considered activist judges. There's judges that take into their, take into their decision-making process uh, some form of external you know, decision. They're, they're going to decide things, and sometimes it happens because of, for political reasons. Sometimes it's just that they don't want this case to go forward because it's going to be messy, whatever it might be. There's times when decisions are made by judges that are eventually seen as potentially being a mistake, and that's why we have the process we do with courts of appeals and supreme courts. They exist to make sure that everybody's due process is met. And so the Supreme Court's going to actually look at it and ask two questions. First, they're going to ask, was the lock change request made? Mary's not around, unfortunately, to answer this question. So really, it's going to come down to the word of the landlord and the maintenance workers against what Mary told her mother, Sherry. So it's going to be a bit of hearsay on the part of Sherry, but it's also going to be sworn testimony from the landlord, the maintenance workers. And again, this is where the Supreme Court said, this is what courts exist for. There's, they, It's their job to weigh the evidence in this case. And if they put it forward to a trial and either the jury or somehow the judge decides that Sherry Smith didn't do a good enough job convincing them that this change of lock request was ever made in the first place, then the whole case is done right there because if if she turned down the request for the change of the lock or said that she didn't want it done there's nothing that the landlords are responsible for but if the courts decide they either don't believe these maintenance workers the landlord they think they're lying or there's a some type of a 
miscommunication or something along those lines but the landlords should have changed her locks because again she can't change the locks she it's illegal for her to change her own lock so really she's at the mercy of the landlords to do these this lock change so her protection which is provided by the locked doors is the job of the landlords especially if she made that change of uh, of lock request then they have to decide if she made that request and it wasn't completed by the landlords does that then rise to the level of it's the landlord's fault because you can do a change of lock request and i think it was probably around july 6th or something like that and then you're going into a weekend now if the landlords don't understand that this is a matter of of safety of of, of imminent danger to the person then the omission of them doing it maybe saying hey we'll get around to it next week or whatever it might be that could mitigate their liability as well so again it's it's a complicated case but it's one that needed to be seen in court not one decided by a judge before it ever ever got there so the unfortunate side of things is i couldn't find the outcome of this case the last I saw of it was that the Supreme Court remanded it back to the circuit courts. So it's possible that it either settled out of court and no media coverage or mention was ever made of it. Uh, it's also possible the courts did take a closer look and either decided a change lock request wasn't made and therefore the entire case is null and void or they decided Mary had not made the landlords fully aware of the situation so they could not have foreseen the true gravity of it and couldn't be held liable so it's it's possible that again the lawsuit went nowhere it's possible the lawsuit was settled it's possible the, the lawsuit was tossed out at some point but um, the only reason I found the the lawsuit itself was because the Supreme Court decision was made you know a matter of public record uh there was really no media outlets covering the lawsuit there's nobody really digging into it to, to determine if if it moved forward or not and every attempt i made to find uh any record of the lawsuit after i think this decision was made in 2001 and published in 2002 any decision after 2002 in regards to this lawsuit i i couldn't find record of it so but at the end of the day, the only positive here is that all four of the animals responsible for this senseless crime are behind bars and will never again see the light of day. And I just hope that Amy Powers, her daughter, and Christian, Mary's daughter, went on to live uh, full lives. But that's the case of Mary K. Ross. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at True Blue Crime Productions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at True Blue Crime Productions. That's it for today, guys. Talk to you later. Goodbye.